Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. I am Jan Fran. I'm joined by Annika Smithhurst. And today on the show, the question that I think Annika has asked herself every day working in the hallowed halls of our nation's capital, why would anyone go into politics? Oh, Jan, I don't only ask myself that as a journalist working in Parliament House. But as a person. As a a person, you know, I see a different side to a lot of politicians. Often they're really smart, have quite successful careers outside of politics. And all of a sudden they decide to spend every third week in Canberra. Mm. They get scrutinised, plus, of course, all the extra stuff we've seen in recent weeks. The treatment, not only of women, but of some men, the bullying, the tactics used. Things like going through your past, which is something many new MPs find out about. They're not going to stop trolling um, your background. I was warned, you know, I was set. I actually had to sit down and they said, what could they come up with? Yeah, we're speaking to an insider who is inside the Canberra bubble uh, to try and work out why anyone would want to enter it, given all the news that we're hearing. Before we get to that, though, let's see what's making news today. It wasn't the Queen or Prince Philip who expressed concern about the skin colour of baby Archie. That's been confirmed by Oprah Winfrey, who sat down with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle for an explosive two-hour interview, it felt like 10, Mm. in which Meghan Markle claimed that a member of the family questioned the skin of her and Harry's baby. Yeah, so Oprah basically confirmed this to CBS Overnight. That's the network there in the US that aired the interview. She insisted that Harry told her off-camera that it wasn't his grandparents who made that comment. So that does narrow down the identity of the royal who allegedly said those words. Concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. So hold up, hold up. There's Stop several right con- now. There are several conversations. There's a about conversation it. with you, with Harry, about how dark your baby is going to be, potentially, and what that would mean or look like. Ooh. Huge revelation there. It was among a number of huge revelations, Mm. including that Megan had struggled with suicidal thoughts. I just didn't want to be alive anymore. And that was a very clear and real and frightening, constant thought. I don't want to be alive anymore. That's, that's, um... I thought it would have solved everything for everyone, right? Oh, man, the thing that struck me watching that interview, that was a particularly um, hard bit to listen to because it's it's really intense seeing somebody reflect on that. But the fact that she also said in that interview that she got no help when she asked for it, the institution, which is what she sort of kept referring to the, um, the palace as, said that they basically couldn't help her. What did you make of the interview, Annika? I know that you were sitting there watching it. <laughs> Yeah, look, it was kind of incredible. Um, Usually the royal mantra is, you know, don't complain, don't explain. And Mm. you never really get to see these people. I've met royals a number of times and you're told, don't ask questions. I've met Prince Harry and you're told to stand there and wait till they ask you questions, which is a weird way to interact with anyone. And inevitably that doesn't happen. But Mm. you don't get to ask them questions like what Oprah did. And to see that um, the struggle she had, I I don't doubt that it, it must be a really lonely place. It's interesting for the royal family, though, not having a right of reply. That would traditionally be what they would do. They wouldn't reply. I'm not sure if they're going to abide by that this time. Yeah, Times I mean, have changed. What's what's the protocol here? Because the Queen, I don't think I've ever seen the Queen give an interview. 
Um, mm. To be fair, I haven't been trawling the archives, but they are notoriously private. So I wonder whether they will come out and do an interview or perhaps just release a statement through their advisors. You'd have to think it's going to be a statement. They mm. are incredibly private and when they do do events, they're highly sort of structured and and thought about beforehand, questions submitted and all that. Having said that, we saw that disaster from Prince Andrew last year. Yeah, that's look- <laughs> why royals shouldn't give interviews, exactly. Uh, I don't think they're going to make that mistake again, but I wouldn't be surprised this time given the, you know, explosive allegations uh, both yeah. Harry and Meghan have said if if they don't put out a statement this time. Well, I mean, he said that he, you know, was not really speaking to his dad that much. He said that he had been cut off financially from his family and he basically said that it was the lack of support that drove them out of their roles and that if the support had been there, they would have remained part of the royal household and, and seemingly happily so. Oprah also asked Harry what his mother, Princess Diana, would have made of the couple's decision to turn their back on the royal family. I think she would feel very angry with how this has panned out mm-hmm. and very sad. But ultimately, she, all, she'd ever, all she'd ever want is for us to be happy. Yeah, and if you watch the interview, um, I must say, I know that you can't really go off a two-hour Oprah interview for all your beliefs and thoughts, but they did seem happy. If you or somebody that you know, though, needs help here, please call Lifeline at 13 11 14. I know that interview brought up um, a lot of serious stuff. Former Foreign Minister Julie Bishop has backed a coronial inquiry into the death of the woman who made allegations of rape against Attorney General Christian Porter. Last night, Miss Bishop told the ABC the inquest being considered by the South Australian coroner should go ahead. Yeah, she also said that the culture inside Parliament House needs to change and needed a better system for dealing with complaints. If the events of the past few weeks did not lead to change, then frankly, nothing will. Host there, Lee Sales, asked Miss Bishop if rumours that she had been targeted by a group of men calling themselves, quote unquote, the swinging dicks were true. Well, actually, I believe it was big swinging dicks. So there was obviously an overexcited imagination on the part of some, I would suggest. (laughs) Ah, Julie, I miss her. Miss Bishop did say, though, their attempts to stand in her way ultimately failed. If they were seeking to block my aspirations, well, they didn't succeed. My ambition was to be the Foreign Minister of Australia, and I'm very proud to say that I served in that role for five years. And likewise, I was Deputy Leader of the party for 11 years. So if their ambition was to thwart my aspirations, then they failed. Yeah, Julie Bishop quit Parliament in 2018. She did make a bid for the Liberal leadership there. She was part of the spill. Um, And when she left, she did say that she had been treated uh, rather poorly and reflected um, perhaps on some of the behaviours of of members of her own party and generally the culture down in Canberra. Businesses will get an extra $1.2 billion from the federal government to hire apprentices. Yeah, this is up to 70,000 apprentices who are set to benefit from this over the next 12 months. Um, It's something that the PM is uh, due to announce today. This is an extension, actually, of the tradie wage subsidy scheme that was first set up last year. So in October last year, $1.2 billion was announced with an initial cap of 100,000 places. Now, those places have been filled, hence the extension. And, of course, these places are likely to go, just given the nature of apprenticeships, to young people. I wonder if this is the government trying to avoid a youth unemployment crisis, Annika. 
I think there's a few things at play here. Three things, I reckon. There's going to be an election in the next 18 months Mm. and I notice a lot of things around election time. We talk about tradies a lot. There's always a lot of programs for tradies in the lead up to an election, but there is a reason for that. They're a huge voting block. They (laughs) tend to live in quite marginal seats. But as you say, we've also seen the COVID-19 restrictions lead to a really tough time for young people. There was some data out last year that found youth unemployment hit a 23-year high of 16% in June last year, but it was still at 15% in October, and that's something the government doesn't want. We know young people were really hurt by what's happened recently, Mm. and this is their way to try and fix it. A boost to national savings from the COVID pandemic is expected to fuel Australia's recovery after our first recession in almost 30 years. So the Treasury says that the pandemic's basically encouraged Australians to save leading to a stockpile of more than $120 billion. It's led to confidence the economy will keep growing past the end of the JobKeeper wage subsidy as spending on real estate and retail increased. Australian house prices jumped by 2.1% in February alone, the biggest one-month gain in 18 years. So is the idea here that we spend all the money we've saved, Jan, now to get us out of this? Well, I think so. I'm still... I'm happy to. I'm happy to. (laughs) (laughs) How do house prices keep increasing? Can somebody please... I think we we might need to do a briefing on this because I need to sit down (laughs) and understand how it is that I still cannot buy a house with a lawn. All right, that's the end of my I can't buy a house rant. (laughs) Next, we're heading to Canberra. The toxic culture of Canberra. The concerning culture in Canberra. The toxic culture inside Parliament House. A very dark cloud has been hovering over Parliament. We need to change that culture. Yeah, it's something that we have been hearing about for the last decade at least. The toxic culture in our nation's capital. And in 2021, that toxicity appears to have hit a whole new level. So based on that, why would anyone go into politics? That's the question we're asking on this episode of The Briefing. Now, I've had this conversation in Canberra a million times. I've worked in Parliament House for years and I've had often thought to myself, would I go into politics? Because it seems pretty rough. Privately, these people are often really intelligent, often the top of their field. They're charismatic, they're fun. You see them on the news and they're guarded and terrified and people just naturally hate them. Mm. And I think there's something about our structure that makes it, not appealing to go into politics, let alone what's happening in there with the culture and the toxicity that we see on the outside. It's also just about why would you put yourself up for the scrutiny, for the criticism, especially in this social media world? And I know that both parties have been saying that they want more women in their ranks, right? But right now in Canberra, it just really does not seem like a great place for women at all. Yeah, I've often maintained it's it's a pretty hard life for a lot of people, especially young parents, men and women. You've got to travel to Canberra a lot. You've got to be squeaky clean. You're constantly being asked to do things by all your constituents. But women have really had a terrible time. We've heard about the alleged rape on the Defence Minister's couch, rape allegations against the Attorney General, an alleged rape victim being called a lying cow by a senator, Allegations of bullying, ministers misbehaving with their staff and extramarital affairs. It's not the sort of place you'd want to go if you're a young woman at the moment. Yeah, and this has just been the last few months. 
that this stuff has been going on for years. In 2019, Green Senator Sarah Hansen-Young sued former Senator David Leinhelm for derogatory comments that he made about her in the press, and she was awarded a $120,000 defamation payout. This win today is for every girl and every woman who has ever been told to stay silent. Please don't. Please speak up. A year before that, Liberal MP Julia Banks, who was the only person to win a seat when she came in for the Liberal Party, she quit politics, taking aim at the bullying and intimidation and harassment within her own party. In my political journey, a culture of appalling behaviour has been widespread, pervasive and undermining, like white ants. Yeah, she mints no words there. Another person who mints no words was Julia Gillard. Who could forget this in 2012? I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. That was the then Prime Minister, almost a decade ago now, speaking about misogyny in Canberra in a, well, now famous speech directed at then opposition leader Tony Abbott. So let's find out what it's actually like to be a politician in Canberra, for that matter, a female politician in Mm. Canberra. Anna Lee is a WAMP for the seat of Cowan. And in 2016, she became the first Muslim woman to be elected to the federal parliament. And welcome. Is it true that you'd never seen a question time before you arrived in Canberra? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) First of all, thank you so much for having me on the briefing. Um, Yeah, it's absolutely true. I um, had a very cursory interest in politics and I was that person who would go to the polls and go, are we voting again? It feels like I just voted yesterday. Why are we voting again and why do I have to vote for these idiots? I was very much that person. And before entering (laughs) politics, I actually remember speaking to you because you were working as a professor at Edith Cowan University. You were a renowned expert in counter-terrorism. You had a great life. Why on earth did you give it all up to become a politician? You know, oddly enough, that was um, the question that I asked. When I was approached and asked if I wanted to, uh, if I would consider running for Labor for the seat of Cowan, I looked at them and I said, why? Why would I give up a career that I've built over two decades where I'm at, you know, the height of my career and I've got a world-renowned reputation. I'm running my own research centre. I've got a team of researchers. I've got three ARC grants. Why would I leave that and do this? And the answer that came back was because it would be a different way to make change. What has your experience as a woman been in Canberra? You know, at times it is incredibly frustrating because it is a very male-dominated place and the structures and the systems there are very patriarchal. First of all, politics is not a meritocracy. So you could be the best woman in the room and it doesn't guarantee you anything, even though we have a policy of giving women winnable seats. Women are often given the seats where they have to work the hardest. They're not safe seats. They're marginal seats. So every um, election time you're facing the fact that you might not win your seat again, the light that's been shone on the culture in Parliament over the last few weeks has really opened up to a whole nation just how deep and how far and wide 
the patriarchy is within this system, it needs to change, but it doesn't change if we turn our back on it. I wanted to talk about the weaponizing of information. Now, this has come up a little bit this week with some of those people supporting Christian Porter saying that he can't be forced to stand down based on allegations because should that become a precedent, then, you know, it can be a, a political weapon to try and get rid of people. Now, more broadly than this Christian Porter situation, you would know that uh, over your career and whether that's at election time or in pre-selections that things from your past or people's religion can be used in, in ways to try and, I guess, discredit them. I wanted to ask you how can we change that so that people aren't afraid of certain aspects of their life or potentially facing things that didn't happen and accusations that didn't happen when they go into politics? Yeah, it's it's such a vexed question. This this week, actually, is it this week or next week, marks the 100 years since Edith Cowan was the first woman elected to parliament. Her story is quite extraordinary because she was the first woman elected to any parliament in Australia. But her story is that her mother died when she was quite young and her father was actually hung for the murder of her stepmother. He murdered her in a drunken rage. She was really, really worried and her family, her husband was really worried that that was going to surface and was going to be used against her when she ran for office. But what was used against her was the fact that she was abandoning her children to run for office, even though her youngest was 35 years old, believe it or not. I looked at her story and I thought it was quite extraordinary that 100 years ago this was being used. And today I wonder if somebody ran for office who came from that kind of family background, just how that would be used. And I think it would be used against them. But what's with that though, Anne? Because looking at kind of getting, you know, the next generation into Canberra, like I'm a millennial, everything's online. Like if you want to dig in, you can dig into anyone. It's all out there. At what point does that just become something that we're used to? Like at what point are we going to get over that and move on? Is it actually legitimate that you do go back and comb through everyone's social media history to use it against them? I don't think there is legitimate. I I do think, though, that this isn't just something that politicians themselves can change. It's not just something that the political parties themselves can change. Yes, if they stop doing it, it'll stop happening. But also, they won't stop doing it if it keeps working. That's a fact. Mm. They're not going to stop trolling um, be a background. I was warned, you know, I was set. I actually had to sit down and they said, what could they come up with? What's out there on you? So while political parties do it, they do it because they know it's going to work on people. So yeah, maybe this is a broader conversation that we need to have as a population. Just in terms mm. of sort of looking forward, right? Like what What sort of structural changes or just any changes that you would put in place to make politics more appealing, particularly to women, not exclusively to women, but particularly to women? Yeah, I think, first of all, uh, if it was me, coming from the background that I come from, where I've always, always had to rely on hard work and have taken pride in that, the first thing I would do is install 
a process of meritocracy. It would upset a lot of the kind of the party machinery, but I think that that's a big issue that needs to be addressed. Scott Morrison would say there's already a system of meritocracy in place in Parliament. Sure there is. Have you not seen the League of Unextraordinary Gentlemen that donned the front bench? There is no meritocracy. There is no process of meritocracy in Parliament. You can have a really extraordinary person with a great history and, 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 and a fantastic CV and and so many achievements up against a very, very ordinary person at election time and they'll lose the seat. On both sides, you've got some really incredible talent that will always sit on the back benches. There is no, no meritocracy. If there is, it works very, very rarely. And I think that's the first thing I would do. I would install some systems of meritocracy to encourage our best and brightest, really, Mm. to hold office. And I feel like this has been a bit negative. I've spent years working in Parliament House and Mm. I found politicians privately to be quite fun, quite funny, Mm -hmm. smart, good people, and a lot of them enjoy the job too. So I guess I just wanted to end on a bit of a high and say, Mm. you know, Malcolm Turnbull used to say it was the best job in the world and he loved being Prime Minister. A lot of politicians feel this way. Sell it to us. Why is it great? (laughs) Don't get me wrong. I have my moments of doubt where I think, what did I give up to do this? You know, should I have given up my, my career to do this? But ultimately, and at the end of every day, this is an incredible opportunity. It is an incredible platform to make change. You meet and you get the honour of meeting so many people who are doing incredible things every day. Um, And I'm not talking, you know, the CEO of a company or the chairman of the board or anything like that. I'm talking about everyday people doing everyday things. You get to see a side of our nation that very few people get to see, and it's an absolute honour to do that. It's an incredible journey to be a parliamentarian. If you take every opportunity that's given you to you, you can make change. That was Anne Ali there, the Labor member for Cowan, really putting on the hard sell as to why you should get into politics, whether you're a man or a woman. There you go. All right, that is it for today's show. Tomorrow, I'm so effing tired. That's not just my mantra in life. No, it's actually a book that we're going to be exploring, asking the question... Why are we so tired and what can we do about it? Join me tomorrow. Catch you soon. Listener.